Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Karen Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I am here today with Prue Plummer, professor in physical therapy at the School of Health and Rehab Sciences at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. And we are here today to talk with Prue about management of patients with multiple sclerosis. So Prue, welcome and tell us just a little bit about yourself before we dive into our conversation. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this awesome podcast. I think it's important for your listeners to realize that even though I'm a licensed physical therapist, I really am a researcher and a teacher more than I am a clinician. So I was trained as a physiotherapist in Australia where I grew up and I moved to the United States in 2004 for postdoctoral research training and I've been here ever since. Um, So I haven't worked clinically in the United States, although I did some clinical work while I was in Australia. So I think that's an important perspective for your listeners to have that I am looking at this from the scientific viewpoint mostly, and I really welcome the input from um, clinicians. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, you know what? That's great for us too. We We like to talk to researchers because we do represent more clinicians typically. And so we, you know, we really try to like dive down to like, what is it like, Hmm. you know, how is it that your information can help me when I head into the clinic tomorrow? Um, So we're going to, we're going to try to get to some of that. Um, All right. So you said you're teaching and also doing research. So what areas specifically are you researching like right now? So related to multiple sclerosis, I'm involved in a multi-site clinical trial that is funded by PCORI that is examining the effects of an exercise training program delivered in an in-person format versus a tele-rehab format, which is ultimately very timely as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's a strength and exercise, it's a strength and aerobic Um, intervention delivered for 16 weeks. It's the GEMS intervention. So the guide, it's based on the published guidelines for exercise in MS, which have been derived from several evidence-based systematic reviews. It's a progressive resistance training and and aerobic training program. And so I'm involved in providing the um, in-person-based program and the tele-rehab is all being conducted out of the one of the other sites. So that has been um, a great project for us to get involved in. And are you on a little bit of hold with the in-person stuff? Or have you yes, started that? So we have been delayed for quite some time. We are just getting ready to resume right now. Okay. Well, that's exciting. It's mm-hmm. a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I think that the tele-rehab program was able to continue during the pandemic for the people who had been randomized to that group, Right, but we weren't able to conduct any of the in-person follow-up evaluations. So we've had to modify the outcome assessment a little bit during this time for people who were able to complete their treatment. 
Um, but no, it'll be exciting to finish this in the next year or so. Yeah, that is exciting. More specifically, what does GEMS consist of and like where could people find information about it? So there are a couple of randomized controlled trials that have been published with the GEMS program. Um, and it's it's a it's a very well thought out program in terms of the um, progression sequence. So they have customized the program so that it can be tailored for um, people based on their baseline um, capacity. So for the first couple of weeks, everybody does 10 minutes of aerobic training and five different strengthening exercises. And then based on where they and their coach believe they feel at the end of those two weeks, they either choose an easy, medium or rapid um, progression sequence. The ultimate goal of GEMS is for people to be exercising um, twice a week with uh, resistance exercises for major muscle groups. So it's up to 10 exercises ultimately Mm -hmm. and up to 30 minutes of aerobic training. So over the 16 weeks, they gradually build up to that intensity and duration based Mm -hmm. on um, their individual level. So I think the the most rapid progression sequence has people achieving those targets after six weeks. And the slowest progression has people not reaching those milestones until um, 10 weeks. And mm-hmm. I think the, the beauty of, of GEMS is that it really is designed to ch- to be a lifestyle behavior. So it's not just an intervention that here's your 16 weeks of exercise. Now you're better. It's really, I think it's delivered over that time frame so that people will develop exercise as a routine and a lifestyle behavior and the point of getting them to that level of intensity is so that they are able to work out for at a capacity at which they're going to receive the health benefits of exercise Mm -hmm. because this is one of the problems we see in people with multiple sclerosis is they're largely inactive um, and when they are exercising the intensity is perhaps not sufficient to be able to get the health benefits that we would expect to see from someone who's exercising regularly. So it's meant to be a lifestyle um, change. And so the the Pokori study that I'm involved in has a social cognitive theory element attached to the exercise program that's supposed to help with that self-efficacy for exercise, Mm -hmm. identifying what the barriers might be, helping people learn how to set goals for themselves, overcome barriers, but also identify what might facilitate their behavioral change. Mm -hmm. And you're doing that aspect for both the um, in-person and the tele-rehab interventions. Yeah. The critical difference is just whether that coaching is occurring face-to-face. And Mm -hmm. then for the face-to-face group, they're getting supervised training. The um, tele-exercise group is getting their coaching remotely, either via video chat or phone call. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So um, I just want to ask the question, how are you measuring self-efficacy? Are you measuring it? And how are you measuring it in that study? There are a large number of um, self-reported outcomes in this study. The primary outcome is related to um, mobility, walking ability, and disability on the EDSS. But there, um, I think it's the exercise for self-efficacy scale for people with MS. Yeah, I feel like MS has actually does have a self-efficacy scale that's made for people with MS. 
It, it, it does. And actually, there's a couple of dimensions to self-efficacy, though. So there's um, self-efficacy for exercise, mm-hmm. and then there's self-efficacy for um, disease-related barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a student um, who was working with me a few years ago who, for her capstone project, conducted a case study with a person with very severe MS, um, EDSS. Um, eight, so primarily wheelchair bound, yeah. and she provided an education and self-efficacy intervention very similar to what we're using in this um, PCORI exercise trial, and found that even though that participant was unable to make very many gains from an exercise program, her self-efficacy improved. So mm-hmm. the education and the um, the confidence that was instilled through the education and part of that program that my student provided included a peer mentor, which I think is a genius. Yes. Someone else with a similar level of disability, but has successfully found strategies to um, be able to engage in the community and have high self-efficacy was a mentor to the, to the participant. Yeah. And I think that was really a, a, a very genius um addition to the intervention program. Right. Yeah. We've talked to people um, on the podcast who are doing group exercise interventions. And that's one of the things that comes up often is that peer modeling. And I think there's actually studies um, where they've shown that peer modeling increases adherence to exercise. And so that is a huge part of of getting somebody, getting that behavior change piece. And I think that's so important because, well, I think as physical therapists, our interventions started out maybe as episodic. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with people with degenerative diseases and, and, and even, you know, other people like older folks or, um, you know, people with obesity, we're, we're really trying to promote more behavior change and lifestyle change. It, it definitely changes what we're doing and our interventions. And we're getting into this longer term. I mean, like you indicated that this protocol that you have for this study is a 16 week intervention and that that's, you know, that's a long time and it mm-hmm. is a long time, but, you know, ideally we're still, we're following up with our patients on regular six to 12 month inter intervals so that we can sort of continue to support them in this exercise because things change over time, Mm -hmm. you know, over years. Right. Yep. I know where I was working at UNC before I moved back to Boston last year, the outpatient clinic was trying to encourage their patients with MS to come back every three months. Mm-hmm. for some kind of check-in. And I think that's a great idea. And I think with regard to the group exercise or group interaction too, I think the other critical difference that that makes is it makes the experience more enjoyable. And I think if people can enjoy their exercise experience and it doesn't feel like a burden or a chore, they're much more likely to adhere. And we know that people who adhere have better outcomes than people who are inconsistent with their exercise practice. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's true for all of us, right? Like, I'm definitely (laughs) more likely to go out there in the cold, rain, dark, if somebody's (laughs) waiting for me. And if somebody's not waiting for me, I'm just going to stay snug in my bed. 
So I, I hadn't, the exercise training program has, um, a study has been very exciting for me to get involved in because it's a multi-site trial and I do love the collaboration with the other sites. But as a physical therapist, I really view rehabilitation much more than resistance training and aerobic training. So I think as skilled professionals, we are really trained to treat movement disorders. And where I can see clearly the benefits of resistance training and aerobic training for improving aspects of mobility, I do think that we have patients with MS who have more complicated movement disorder problems, ataxia or vestibular related problems that we won't necessarily be able to treat with an exercise program. So coming into the MS world as a researcher, I have been kind of surprised to see how much um, there's so much literature on exercise training, which is traditionally um, the strength training and aerobic training, and very little on actual physical therapy focused rehab. There's certainly been research in unimodal types of interventions, such as body weight supported treadmill training, robotic assisted gait training, but very little that is represents our pragmatic um, multimodal clinical practice. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm working on with Nora Fritz is to conduct a head-to-head -head study of whether a rehab, a motor relearning focused intervention um, can produce the same or different outcomes to a traditional GEM style exercise program. And I, I suspect that is actually, we'll find that certain people need certain types of intervention. And I'm not quite sure that at least from the research standpoint that we know who's going to respond to what and which might be more appropriate based on where you are in terms of movement disorder diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So describe for me a little bit the kind of intervention you're talking about comparing to the GEMS. Are you talking about, you're talking about one-on-one -on -one physical therapy yep. that is just more specific to the impairments of the person that you're, that's in front of you? Yes, using a, so I trained in Australia, as I said, so I'm very biased by the Karen Shepherd Motor Relearning Program for Neurological Rehabilitation. So I'm of the very task-oriented um, rehabilitation philosophy where I, break, I do a task analysis and I break down the task and I train the components and then I put it back together in the whole task and then I want to transfer it to something functional and contextual. So that is generally the structure for the rehab um, intervention that we use in our studies of motor, that motor relearning focused intervention has a part task practice segment, a whole task practice segment, and a contextual transfer training segment. To me, that's the recipe of a motor relearning intervention. So that so we focus on balance and mobility in those in that kind of intervention for um, in our comparison to exercise training effects on mobility. So we're just getting um, we're still trying to get this work funded. We have some preliminary data that's too early to say what might be there. We have discovered there was recently a new um, clinical trial published that did find that the balanced motor control intervention was more effective than prim um, isolated resistance training for improving mobility and balance. So I do think there's a, to me, there's a difference between rehabilitation and exercise training. Mm -hmm. And it that is not always distinguished in the MS literature. But I think PTs need to really fight more for our skilled 
the skilled intervention for movement disorders that we can treat in addition to just providing strength and endurance training. Right. I mean, I sort of view it like that, that strength and endurance training that we as a profession should support is like your baseline, right? It's what we all need to do as humans to function optimally in the world to the best of our individual abilities. But then when you have a mobility problem or a neurodegenerative disease, you need to, that's a complication that's like layered on top of that. And that complication then needs to be to have some specialization, right? You go to your neurologist because you have a neurologic problem. Well, that neurologic problem results in a mobility problem, whether you can tell or not, we can probably tell. And eventually you are going to be able to tell. So, you know, you kind of need to be seeing your physical therapist on that same kind of of regular thing. I, I, it's interesting because I do think sometimes it gets perceived as an either or, but it's not like we all need all of it. Right. Like I, mm-hmm. I have a problem with some joint. I, I go to my PT and get it fixed, but in between, I'm still doing all of that, my regular exercise. And I want my I- I completely agree. I think that that is always going to be a fundamental component of what a physical therapist will do for someone who has a degenerative disease and mobility impairment. But I don't think that's all that we would do, which is why we're really interested in in looking at more of a skilled intervention approach. It was interesting, though, um, that article I mentioned that was recently published to the the waitlist control group after at the end of the waitlist period got um, a combined intervention. So one instead of twice a week of one intervention, they got one, um, twice a week, once uh, strength training and once the balance motor control. And they had um, they had superior outcomes. Um, well, not different. No, sorry, not different outcomes to the others. So a combined approach can also be optimal, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a combined approach compared to just one versus the other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's there's a there's a lot. There's a, a lot that we still need to learn and a lot of research that still needs to happen. And I think that that's one of the things that's frustrating and and hard is that we're often sort of like you know, get into our patterns as clinicians and we sort of sort of kind of fly by the seat of our pants a little bit. Um and it it is nice to have that better evidence behind what we're doing to really support it. Yeah. So one of the things I would add about that is I'm I'm fascinated to know how clinicians can make sense of the literature sometimes, or at least know how to apply it. What is its applicability to their particular patient? Because what I take from the literature is that most of the rehab studies and exercise studies are uh, mixed samples. So people with any phenotype of MS. And I think, uh, so one of the other things I'm really starting to focus on is to figure out whether responsiveness to an intervention approach where we're aiming for and expecting restoration is achievable in people who have progressive disease versus those who are in a remitting phase of relapsing remitting disease. So I just don't know that you can lump them together, give them the same intervention, and then say this is the effect of the intervention. Yeah, I 
think we probably need to separate them and say this is how this is how well it works in people who are progressing and this is how it works in people who are stable right yeah that makes total sense i think and i think that as clinicians people you automatically do that with the person in front of you but having that specified or or better laid out in the literature, I think would be huge. And then I also think, you know, MS, and we've had this conversation with others too. One of the difficult things about people with MS is that it can affect so many different systems. So, you know, if if your intervention has say less on the balance side, like maybe the GEMS does, because right, it's resistive training and aerobic. (laughs) might not focus on balance, but, but a large part of your impairment is to your vestibular system mm-hmm. you might really benefit more from more balance intervention. And so that's where like you could take, I mean, the, it sounds like the gems program is probably good for pretty much anybody, but then you need to layer on top of that, the work that you need to do specifically for where you're, you happen to be more impaired. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So I also wanted to ask you about um, some of the work that you've done with Ampira because some clinicians might be seeing patients that are on that medication. So can you tell us a little bit about that work? Sure. I was absolutely fascinated when I heard about this pill, which a neurologist referred to me as the walking pill. Mm -hmm. And as a a clinician who's interested in a clinician scientist who's interested in mobility, I was like, what a walking pill. So I really dug into the, I heard some presentations on it and I just, they weren't presenting it in enough detail that I was really convinced about the results. So I, I dug my own teeth into the literature a little bit. Um, I perhaps my expectations were too high, but I was unimpressed with the response rate. When you have fewer than 40% of the people who take it who actually demonstrate what is considered a clinically significant improvement, maybe maybe that's a lot. To me, I personally would be disappointed if only 40% of the patients I treated were getting better by a meaningful amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually really, once I learned a bit more about how the drug is supposed to work, which is through improved nerve conduction velocity in the demyelinated axons, which, so it shouldn't be specific to walking if that's how it's working. We should see improvements in anything that requires um, faster nerve conduction. But I was um, surprised to see that it hadn't been combined with a rehabilitation program that had already been found to have beneficial effects on mobility. So we did a pilot study where we recruited patients we had the pilot study was only had a small budget so we weren't providing the drug as part of the study but we were um, asking neurologists to refer to us patients who they were newly prescribing Ampira and then having them um, start their medication and we assessed them for a period of uh, three weeks three to four weeks while they were first starting the medication because if they're going to respond they'll respond in two to four weeks Um, And then we gave them a six-week physical therapy program, similar to the intervention program I described to you before. And we compared them to people who we, so we simultaneously recruited people who weren't taking delfampridine and then gave them the the same um, observation baseline phase and the same intervention. 
And we did observe that um, of the four participants we had who were taking delfampridine, um, Which not is one the generic name for Ampira. Yes. Yeah. Um, they were. Um, none of them had a clinically meaningful response in the baseline phase. So the drug alone didn't wouldn't they wouldn't have been classified as responders in the drug trials. Mm-hmm. But once we added the physical therapy, every single one of them well exceeded the responder threshold. So combining the physical therapy program uh, with their medication seemed to have some kind of augmentation effect on either what the drug was doing or the drug was augmenting what we could get from physical therapy. Mm -hmm. We saw smaller improvements in the people who were getting the physical therapy and weren't taking delfampridine. So it it was a very small pilot study and they weren't matched on all of their characteristics, but um, certainly it it has generated a hypothesis for us that the combination of therapy could potentially turn non-responders, which is 60% of the people who take Ampira, mm-hmm. into responders. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that could mean, um, well, a lot, a, a, a lot of positive outcome for patients who take it, but also a lot more profit for the drug company if they'd be right. willing and, to invest the research. Hey, we, sh- we, should be co- we, we should get on the phone with those guys. <laughs> You want to fund us? Yeah, we we can turn your non-responders into responders. (laughs) Um, So, you know, interesting because I do think sometimes you see people that have been on it in the past and failed. And so they're done. They're like not going to go on it again. Mm -hmm. Um, But it makes sense, right? If it, if, if the idea of the drug is that it, it affects nerve conduction velocity, but you're not really being helped to increase your walking Mm -hmm. or your walking speed. I mean, oftentimes people don't feel comfortable increasing their activity level and it's hard to do. Right. And so if they don't have that support to actually increase their activity level, then so what if your nerves are conducting faster sitting in the chair with your, you know, in the recliner, it's going to be the same kind of no matter what. So yeah, you would think really, people taking it might try to walk more, but well, if someone told you you could take this pill and it will make you walk faster without doing anything, would you do anything else? Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't. Right, but right. I think so. Uh, the other issue that we learned with that experience was the insurance approval. So there were some insurance companies who, if the patients didn't respond by what the drug trials had deemed a responder. Mm-hmm. Even though, so the patients we had who were technically non-responders, all of them thought they were uh, they were a little bit better just from the drug alone. And I'm not sure that was ever taken into consideration in the drug studies. It was based solely on um, the consistency of their improvement in gait speed over their visits. But so um, some insurance companies won't renew the drug if they haven't responded they won't pay for it in if it's technically not working but I really so the responder definition was kind of arbitrarily determined in my opinion um and I so that has also made me very interested in what is a meaningful response to the patient Mm -hmm. and we conducted a so we measured in our pilot study we measured times 25 foot walk so gate speed so we could compare our results to the drug study results. 
But anecdotally, what the patients were telling us was that, you know, walking, walking faster is not necessarily making a big difference in their life. They want to, so we conducted a series of focus groups and interviews and some online surveys Mm -hmm. and found that people with MS care more about not, um, not having to use an assistive device if they can, walking further and not falling. Those were the three most important outcomes for people living with MS, not that how fast they walk. And we, we actually, we interviewed clinicians too, and we asked them, how do you determine if your patient has had a meaningful response to therapy? And overwhelmingly, the clinicians are, do, are doing what they were taught in school, which was to evaluate outcomes compared to what we know for minimal clinically important differences to know whether they've had a treatment effect. So our expectation as clinicians is that treat, treatment hasn't been effective unless someone improves by this amount. But the other thing we learned from the focus groups is that because people with MS are used to declining, right. they are happy if they are just not getting worse. Right. Yeah. So it, it completely challenges our philosophy here that we can all, we're only being successful as therapists if people are improving by a large amount. Slowing the decline is important to patients. And we need to take that into account when we're determining what is a therapeutically important outcome for patients with MS. Right. I mean, not declining over some period of time is huge. Mm -hmm. When we asked in our survey, um, and we did provide some options, and, uh, and also allowed the respondents to fill in their options. But not getting worse was one of the ways that, well, the most common way, actually, that the respondents said they would have deemed a, resp- a therapy to have been successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense when you have a degenerative disease. Mm-hmm. Right? If you can stop the degeneration, then that's success. And it is a difference. It's a difference over baseline. But the problem is we don't know what baseline is. Like, what do we expect for decline? And then again, like when you're talking about these different phenotypes, I mean, you know, if you're, who knows, like just who knows what their natural course would be without it. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to determine. Difficult to design a study where you don't provide intervention. I really think these days it's hard to withhold intervention um, so I'm in the process of reviewing the literature and extracting the pre-post data from waitlist control groups. So technically people who are only getting their usual care just to see what the um, natural fluctuation over time would be versus those who are getting some form of active therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there must be data on decline, like EDSS scores over time mm-hmm. for, for typical, you know. Yeah, there, there is. There's a lot of um, longitudinal studies. In fact, what patients are receiving in terms of rehab in between their visits is not well documented. Um, but again, it's impossible for, to deny people access to care just to see how they would progress over time. But yeah, well, there is some research about that. But in terms of designing um, clinical research for our purposes, I do think it's important that we have not just a single measure of baseline and assume that that's their stable level, that we should probably consider multiple baseline designs in order to look at um, what is the stability 
without treatment versus what happens when we introduce the treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So many questions that I feel like we may never have answers to. (laughs) He's right. Well, Prue, I think this has been a really great conversation. I think our listeners will get a lot out of it and certainly has given us a lot to think about and to look into when we're treating our patients with MS. We do on this podcast like to ask people what they enjoy doing when they're not working. So we'd love to hear what you enjoy to do when you're not working. Well, I was wish I wish I was one of those physical therapists who liked running or something healthy, but all the things I enjoy doing are very sedentary and unhealthy. So I have been I have taken up the piano in the last few years. So I bought a piano for myself when I turned 40 and I've been taking lessons. Um, I also love to cook. And actually during the pandemic, my project, my self-development project has switched to mixology. Oh. And I'm a bit of a um, I'm a bit of an experimenter with cocktail making and infusing tequila and all sorts of things like that. So I'm not sure that's broadcastable, but that is how <laughs> I spending my time during the pandemic when I'm not working. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely broadcastable. I think it's super interesting because um, I think there's been a lot of that going around <laughs> during the pandemic. Well, that's super fun. You said you moved back t- to Boston? Yes, I was in Boston for five years um, from 2008 to 2013. Then I went to UNC for six years and I've come back. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Most of us on this call right now are in the are in the Northeast. So, yeah, this climate is much more my style. I like seasons. North, it's humid six or seven months of the year in North Carolina. I couldn't stand it. Yeah, that's hard. Well, thanks again for joining us, and I hope that you'll consider in the future coming back and chatting with us again. I'd love to. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. And, and we definitely want to hear more about this, um, this PCORI research project. I think it's going to be super interesting, especially now with the whole pandemic stuff and people going more and more to tele-rehab. It's perfect timing. Yeah. It's going to be one of the largest studies that's ever been done in exercise in MS. So I'm sure you'll hear about it. It's going to be exciting to see the results. Great. Well, we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks very much. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Crandall, Katie McGraw, Adriana Carey, Mira Pierce, and Lizzie Johnson. I'm Parm Paget. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And special thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Since you haven't listened, you might not know this, but we have bloopers. <laughs> uh, did did we have any? Vol- oh, who are the? This is not very. Yeah, that there's no cat bloopers. There's no cat. There's no wombat screaming in the background. That's his mm-hmm. name. <laughs> it must be daunting. Keep me well. employed. Yeah. yeah. There's there's plenty of work to be done, right? Is there anything from the peanut gallery that you guys want to hear about? My, you know, being my bonnet points, <laughs> the things that make me 
frustrated, but also motivated. Oh, there's somebody at my door. Oh, hang on a second. <laughs> okay. Why we were in the middle of some like really great whatever. Oh, it's like a kid. That's not totally true. At the beginning, I was on with the bloopers, but now I realize it's all just like me being ridiculous. 